0: We had a meeting at one point, because I was uh, my my writing on my dissertation just ground to a halt. We had a meeting and we talked about whether I was gonna do it or not do it. And John Waters was there and the other professors and my dissertation advisor said, What have you been doing? Like the last year or something? And John said, Do you not know that he's the full-time book critic at New York magazine? She said, Of course I know that. He's terrific, it's wonderful. But what have you been doing? Like <laughs> <laughs> like, why have you even writing your dissertation? I was like, wow.
1: That's Sam Anderson, critic at large at the New York Times Magazine, talking about some of the complications of his decision to work full-time as a critic at New York Magazine while working on his dissertation at NYU in the early 2000s. Ultimately, Sam chose not to write the dissertation, though the topic was, as you'll see, pretty fascinating. This episode features the second half of our conversation with Sam, Last episode, we heard about how Sam became interested in magazine writing and criticism and how he tends to approach texts and subjects. In this episode, we hear about Sam's gradual shift from doctoral work at NYU to writing from time to time for Slate and then full time at New York Magazine, where he wrote mostly about sports before becoming book critic. We also get back to the question of whether Sam is a generalist. That topic allows us to address some of Sam's favorite subjects, the people he's written about and is endlessly fascinated by. We move from Dostoevsky to Michelangelo, Samuel Beckett to Mark McGuire, the baseball player. We touch on all these folks because there's something about each of them, their work or their stories, that preoccupies Sam. But what is it? We ask that. We consider some of the themes that Sam's writing tends to orbit. I ask whether he feels he has some writerly mission, some main idea to get across, some main insight to relate. This episode starts as I ask Sam how readers responded to some of his early essays in which he imitates the style of the authors he's writing about. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. Some readers really hated that stuff and really got mad. Um,
0: And... I can't that always hurt my feelings, but then I came to think of it like I mean that person probably wouldn't enjoy hanging out with me in real life and talking to me. I think it was really a question of temperament. Um, that was another thing I read in grad school was William James's I think it was in pragmatism. And he writes somewhere in there that like there is this great unacknowledged premise in every argument it's almost like paratext there's this thing that you're not supposed to see that's that's never spoken of and that is temperament the temperament of the person making the argument and how i came to think about it was these people just have a completely different temperament than i do a completely different relationship to criticism and reading and sense of humor and what belongs and what doesn't um and that's fine uh I would probably I would probably find their writing really boring, hmm. um, so
1: yeah, people got mad. H- how did you um, make that jump from the academy to New York? Did New York Magazine offer you a job while you were at, in the PhD program? <sighs>
0: okay, so I wrote I wrote this American Scholar essay. It finally came out in the summer of two thousand four, and I got an email from an agent, a literary agent at William Morris Agency, and. He said he was reading the American Scholar <laughs> and he read this essay, which I couldn't believe. He, he came across my essay and he just thought it was really amazing and he'd love to meet and talk. And so I had lunch with him and he's like, I would love to represent you and um, help you kind of get going in the magazine world. And then eventually when a book comes around, like help you get that all set up. Um, so I jumped at that. And the first thing he did was he said, my friend Megan O'Rourke is the culture editor at Slate. So we should get you writing for Slate. And I was like, well, I've pitched Slate like 18 times and I get like an email rejection form letter like as soon as I hit send. And he's like, I'll talk to Megan. So next thing I knew I was writing about, my first Slate piece was about Mitch Hedberg, the comedian who had just died, who I loved. And um, it was like an analysis of his comedy. And then I ended up writing for Slate probably like an essay every few weeks or something for the next couple of years. Um, And that was really my first regular writing gig. And then New York found me through that. Um, They saw something I'd written for Slate. It was actually about Kobe Bryant. And they were like, we're starting a website. They hardly existed on the web at all. It was like where you would look up like restaurants, phone numbers or something. They're like, we want to be this huge web portal, which is now known today as Vulture. And as there's this whole web of websites um and at the time they were like we need a guy to write about new york sports we want you to be the voice of new york sports and i was like okay i guess i could try that so i wrote for them about the 2006 major league baseball playoffs and the mets and i wrote i wrote I spent a lot of time writing these blog posts. I would like watch the game and then I would stay up until like four in the morning writing and revising the blog post. And then it would go out and I wrote, I remember writing one that was like a choose your own adventure novel about the game or something. And just, you know, I tried to be creative. I took the same approach and the editor of New York magazine saw that and was like, who is this guy? What is he doing? Like what, where is he coming from and what does he want to do? So we had lunch and he asked me that question. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a book critic, and he said, okay, we have an, they actually had an opening at Book Critic, which I had no idea about, (laughs) so he kind of auditioned me, um, and I wrote about Martin Amis, and some other people, and then they hired me on full-time, so I was still, I was like, at that point, I was like hitting the PhD, the dissertation writing portion, I think, or at least the dissertation proposing portion, and um, they hired me as a full-time book critic with, like, salary, benefits, et cetera. And at that point, it became this tension of, like, and that was a secret um, from my dissertation advisor. In fact, we had a meeting at one point because I was, uh, my, my writing on my dissertation just ground to a halt. And we had a meeting, and we talked about whether I was going to do it or not do it. And John Waters was there, and the other professors. And my dissertation advisor said, "What have you been doing, like the last year or something?" And John said, "Do you not know that he's the full-time book critic at New York Magazine?" She said, "Of course I know that. He's terrific. It's wonderful. But what have you been doing, like, like, <laughs> like why haven't you been writing your dissertation?" I was like, "Wow." uh and i wish that i had been able to do both and like really crank and get it done but i couldn't i couldn't or let's just say i didn't and i've always had trouble finishing things when i did not have like a deadly Mm. deadline sitting in front of me and i think you know it became a question also of incentive like i kind of had my dream job i was writing magazine book reviews regularly and then i was writing like a couple times a year i was writing like long features for them and um, the profession of English was kind of collapsing all around us. Um, and so there was little financial and career incentive for me to finish writing the dissertation, it seemed like to me. There was a lot of, I don't know what kind of incentive is left from that. It was like, it, was, it felt like ethical, and there was like some spiritual thing that I would get from finishing my dissertation and also I I did actually believe like it would make me smarter in the same way that studying so hard in grad school made me smarter um so I always wanted to finish I wanted to finish my dissertation I didn't want to become a professor but I wanted to finish my dissertation and I still there's still some part of me in the back of my mind that's like oh yeah maybe when I finish the book I'm currently writing um I will go back and finish my dissertation. And sometimes I'll run into John Waters or Patrick Deere or one of my old professors, and they'll say, you know, after you get this book wrapped up, let's just have a meeting where we talk about the possibility of you coming back and finishing up that dissertation. What is the dissertation? Oh, I don't think we've addressed it. (laughs) No, we haven't. It's funny to me that we would address it. Like, it's a thing that doesn't exist. I mean, I proposed it. It was a good proposal. Um, I mean, honestly... Honestly, I don't think I would have made that great of an academic because it's probably not like it wouldn't be the best dissertation because it is a because I don't think I did fully commit and professionalize, you know? Um, and so, and I don't, I actually don't think professionalization is like, uh, it's not some boogeyman here. I think there are great reasons for it. And I think part of professionalization is like the realization that, um, to be adequately smart and informed at something, you have to really focus hard because part of what you learn in grad school is to identify all, all of the things you're not thinking about and not aware of, and you know to sort of kick all of your false confidence in the teeth and, um, and professionalization is just one way of doing that. So I feel like I would have written kind of a dumb kind of a dumb dissertation in some
1: ways. What was the topic? Okay. <laughs> 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 Dodging this. Yeah.
0: It was called... Okay, so so it grew out of one of those great classic grad school essays that everyone has to read, which is the Benjamin essay called The Storyteller. Yeah, Have you read this? Of course. And there's this part in that where he talks about... Um, he sets up this, like binary opposition between like information and the novel and storytelling actually information and storytelling is is really the binary and storytelling as this wonderful sort of primordial face-to-face human thing which is gradually degraded as modern civilization ratchets up the sort of information payload that it's hitting us with all the time and as as, as the modern media is born and, um, and sort of bureaucratization and all this stuff that carries information. And, the n- and storytelling begins to be shot through with information which is not a natural marriage. And what you get is the novel and you get this overloaded information loaded textual no longer face to face um form of storytelling which is the novel which is like uh wounded compromised ancient storytelling and i thought well the novels that i really love the most are actually the novels that load themselves purposely with information as much as the form can stand it to the point where they almost don't function and so i picked <laughs>
1: you like, like joyce
0: yeah i like joyce and and so I picked some novels that in one way or another do that, sort of structure themselves around the notion of information and how it kind of um, uh, undermines storytelling or, or how it transforms storytelling. And these novels, to me, like really challenged what storytelling is and kind of carried it to another level. So, the, and and it was just like, It was like four or five novels, so it was, it was Flann O'Brien at Swim Two Birds, which is constantly just like dumping in encyclopedia entries and and excerpts from this and that, or having characters like diagram how to read a water meter and all this stuff. So funny! I can't believe you haven't read it. You gotta go read (laughs) it.
1: Yeah, I really like the third police one. It's wild.
0: To me, at Swim Two Birds is so much more interesting and better, but that's because I read that one first and was really into that one before I read The Third Policeman. But, um, okay, so at Swim Two Birds by Flan O'Brien, um, Watt by Samuel Beckett, um, which is just like incapacitated by information at points. Uh, Pale Fire was in there. Um, There's this great Indian novel that I read in a grad seminar um, that was called Joyce and Company. It was about Joyce and all these other sort of Joycean or Joyce-adjacent writers. And it was by this Indian writer named G.V. Dasani, and it's called All About H. Hatter. Uh, And it's really funny and weird. So that was one of the chapters. It was me just like piling up books that I liked and making chapters out of them.
1: <laughs> well, that's I mean, that's interesting because at, so you you left the project, even though it's possible that you might come back to it after you finish. Probably not. a book. Probably not. OK. Um, right. Uh, I mean, t- t- <laughs> sorry, John, Waters, was a I mean, else? like let's <laughs> like <laughs> I said, two, two, it's been a long people. time. I entered
0: grad school yeah. here in 2002 that was 15 years ago.
1: Well, so when you made when you made the transition, like the real transition to New York Magazine and you gave you you abandoned Transition is a strong word. Hmm. So
0: there was no line of demarcation. Like it just sort of I just sort of exited stage left and like and like made commitments to turn in writing occasionally and then it didn't happen and then uh and then I started having like crippling anxiety about running into my dissertation advisor <laughs> on the street. And as I nightmares. mentioned to you before the podcast, yeah. <laughs> I, I had these crazy nightmares about it, uh, where I stole and hotwired a car to avoid meeting my dissertation professor when I saw her walking toward me on the sidewalk. But so it, it went like that. Like there was never a point where I was like, I'm out guys. It was just like, yeah, I'll, I will get back to this eventually. But right now I got like I got like three deadlines for the magazine and the next one and and, and we had another another kid
1: and it's just like all my time was kind of full so I'm um, so I was just when I was coming here I was thinking about this and and what it would mean um, to move from grad school or po- the, the possibility of and I know I know you were you were always sort of against it or, or didn't necessarily take it seriously as a possibility but the, but the idea of of having an academic life and having a certain kind of structure where mm. the questions you ask of, of books and the mm. questions uh, you ask of the profession are not necessarily set by the profession, but you do have to respond to the existing scholarship and you mm-hmm. have to respond to a structure yeah. um, to move from that situation to one in which you're basically a, a you are a working critic mm-hmm. who really just has to be in conversation with an editor yeah. And readers. But there's right. less structure because you just respond to culture. Right. In the world. Right. It must have forced you. I, I have to imagine to ask um, uh, real questions about what it is you feel like you have to say. As a writer. Is that true?
0: Sorry, I stopped listening to you. No, it's fine. I Uh, started thinking, you know, I started thinking about, I started thinking about the generalist thing again. And the word that, (laughs) the word that came to mind was, because, because the downside of this is like, there is a part of me that just thinks like, like, this is so much less rigorous than the kind of writing I would be doing. And we can talk about whether that's true, but but this is just less rigorous because I don't have this superstructure over me that is checking up on, I'm not surrounded by the most brilliant people in the world. Although I was impressed with how actually smart and in some cases really brilliant people in the magazine world are. Um, but, there's not as much like pressure per square inch put on the actual quality of the thinking maybe, in this generalist writing this dilettante work that i'm doing um and you know so there's a part of me that's like oh god i'm really slumming it and doing like shitty half-ass work now and and because you look at something like like you know that david brooks column that came out yesterday that everyone made fun everyone of on twitter
1: twitter it's uh, they're still doing that yeah
0: I mean, I read the column and I was like, this is the dumbest shit in the world. I almost wanted, I wanted to like, I wanted to like go into my New York Times email and see if I could get his personal email address, which I probably can in the directory and just say, man, that was so dumb. And here's why it was dumb. (laughs) Like it's so banal. The one thing that's true in this, in this, in this piece that you wrote is like just the most banal observation in the world, which is that there is cultural capital out there that exists, you know, and that, and And there are class striations that are sort of reinforced and governed by types of sandwiches. Like that's all you're saying, but everything else you did, you, you inflected it wrong. It's so dumb. Uh,
1: The $20 $20 thing. Yeah. Yeah. I I
0: mean, and, and so, And so I feel like, well, I must be doing the David Brooks version of criticism.
1: You you seem so dismissive of this idea of 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 being a generalist, but that's not that's not my intention. (laughs) I know, I know you didn't intend it,
0: but I know you didn't intend it. But um, but I'm not doubling your text is what I'm doing, and I'm taking it my own direction, which is my own interior kind of uh, self doubt about what I've done and moving away from the academy, because there is something about the rigor of that. Of academic thought that I respect very deeply.
1: Well, then... Okay, so I... I, And there is so much bullshitty thinking in magazines. I I mean, frankly, we're far enough in the podcast where I feel like even though I'm in grad school, I can still say there's so much bullshitty thinking in the academy. Absolutely, uh, Okay. Which is which is where
0: I started, yeah. Which is like... Yeah, which is what I tell people all the time. There's horrible criticism. There's great criticism. There's brilliant... Yeah, you're right. There's brilliant people writing in magazines and writing really well and and thinking hard in ways that are not academic. Yeah, I mean, that was one thing I actually learned um, was, as I said before, I was was really impressed by how smart, like, your average, uh, like, editor, not even, like, major editor of a magazine, but just, like, editor of some department at a magazine. I mean, these are, like... These are, like people who are every bit as smart and curious mm-hmm. and w- well-informed as the people you'd meet in grad school. So
1: it's, I guess, I think I, that's, that's definitely true. And they also, I, I, I have to imagine again, that they also feel a kind of vocation to talk with many people and not specialize. Yeah. Um, and contribute. this is, this is a kind of Tweety 19th century way of putting it perhaps, but contribute to the culture. Mm. More directly Mm -hmm. Um, to think to think about their relationship with culture generally um, to try to, you know, um, uh, uh, publish essays on things that are important culturally right now. Um, Yeah, and I'm wondering. Okay, so the best, uh, if we're going to admit that there are there are good scholars and bad scholars, and and good writers and bad writers, the goods. I would say that one characteristic of a really good scholar is someone who, who in many ways does has have something to say, and she has a kind of um, an argument to make, a way to contribute to the scholarship. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, by analogy, would you say that as you've developed as a writer, as you've moved from New York Magazine to the New York Times? do you feel like you've developed a sense of a particular sense of writerly mission or purpose? Like you have certain things you really feel like you want to articulate. Does that question make sense?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think I do. I mean what excites me or i guess what what excite i guess what i feel like i have to bring is whatever little spot on the whatever little spot i occupy on some giant Venn diagram at which like academic style criticism intersects with personal essay right. which intersects with like i don't know like stand up comedy sensibility or or or, or not even that. That's too specific. Like, like late twentieth century American middle class guy sensibility. Um, I mean, it's, it's. I just. I guess I feel like what I have to offer is me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know my editors and I have been talking lately about about if there is a theme around which a lot of my writing gravitates and. One thing that we've come up with, which I think is, is like most explicitly present in this piece I wrote last summer um, about Michelangelo's David yeah. and his ankles, which are um, cracked, mm-hmm. is I'm really interested in the disjunction between ideals and perfection and reality. I'm really endlessly fascinated by the ideas we have about things and the messiness of actual things in the world. I don't know why. Um, But that's something I kind of feel myself coming back to all the time. In what ways? I don't know. Um, Oh, I wrote a lot. I I actually... That was an interesting piece. Did you read that piece? Mm -hmm, The Michelangelo one, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting one to work on because... I would spent some time in Florence, and I just thought it was hilarious that there were number one, the statue of the David. Have you been there?
1: No, I wish. But but it is it, that whole idea is that it's very precarious and that it yeah yeah, going, yeah 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 it's yeah. going to
0: fall. But when I first saw it when I was on a little grand tour of Europe when I was young, um, it was the most perfect, impressive, and and still remains to me like probably the most impressive work of art I've ever seen in mm. any medium. And it's just beyond belief that a human made that. Um, and then I found it endlessly funny that there were all these just the world's worst reproductions of it all over Florence. These little statues um, where he just looked emaciated, or he had these big bug eyes, and it was just like <laughs> it was just like we will pay tribute to this perfect thing. <laughs> By making the ugliest thing version of it you can ever imagine. There was something amazing to me about that disjunction and funny. So I wanted to write an essay somehow about that and like, you know, and it was like art in the age of mechanical reproduction yeah. or whatever. And so I started I started writing about that and about how the David had these micro fractures in his ankles and he might fall over if there's an earthquake and break and um and then the more you learn about this apparently perfect thing the more imperfections you find the stone is all pitted and discolored and um is warped in all kinds of different ways fingers broken off etc um and then my editors really pushed me they were like they read an early draft and the editor in chief of the magazine said i feel like there is a deeply personal essay inside of here wanting to be foregrounded more because um, sometimes I try to be very reportorial and very New York Timesy, and try to keep myself out of it, and it almost never works. I'm not that good at it. And so I said, yeah, I think you're right. So I ramped up this personal part. And the other thing was he said, he really nailed it. Like He said, I also wonder if there's some other thinker or artist who you could use as like a touchstone about thinking about perfection and imperfection. And I thought about it for a minute and was like, oh my God, Dostoevsky, who lived in Florence and who I sort of wandered around in his footsteps when I was in Florence. Um, And so I ended up incorporating those strands into the piece and it became this real personal meditation about perfection and imperfection and getting older and like going on antidepressants and um, my arthritic ankles and Dostoevsky, who to me... As I said, I was reading him kind of obsessively and pretentiously in high school, and then I read it all again in college, and I've I've read it here and there over the years since. And he to me is like the great touchstone of um, human messiness or whatever. You know, uh, have you read Dostoevsky? Yeah, yeah, of just like the human yearning for perfection and systems. And the essentially human thing that will not let us attain these perfect systems. Um, and the all the complexities and contradictions involved. So, so I think that's still like a theme that I keep coming back to. Like I really, one thing I really want to write is a profile of Mark McGuire, the baseball player, who was my great hero growing up because I was like, 12 years old when he was um, in the World Series mm-hmm. and I lived in Northern California at that time and I would go to his games and yeah, I had it
1: he said a home, home run record yeah. season yep
0: yeah he broke the great yeah long standing home run record the Roger Maris record and like captured the nation and was mm-hmm. like the nation's great hero and was, yeah, was like when I was a kid yeah and was this like greek god of yeah. a physique you know um and come to find out it's because he was all pumped up on steroids and whatnot. And he had this like very public fall. And that kind of story really interests me. It's like the perfection, the thrill of this notion of a great hero. And then the actual guy. And the pressures of being an actual guy in the world who's trying to be that. I mean, it sounds like the most cliched thing in the world when you say it out loud. But there's a lot of energy there for me in that in that subject and that.
1: Yeah, Well, that's just what I've been wondering because there must be... This is the thing, especially for you to have developed so much in the academy and to have developed uh, the habit of asking very particular questions and finding like the themes and, and the questions you tend to ask. Mm. Um, the fact that you're able to write... You, you've brought up comedy and stand-up comedy mm. a few times in our conversation, and you've also brought up... or I've brought up... And it's come up sports mm-hmm. and then literature. Yep, Three things that... Uh, Aren't usually related at all, or aren't usually thought to be related, right? But that, in fact, but you, they should be, right? Well, that, well, you write about them variably, and not necessarily, and, and always as yourself, and your voice is always there. It's always, yeah, sort of Sam Anderson on this, and that's what I'm wondering. You know, what the links you see between those two things? Do they end up being about, as you say, perfection and imperfection, and the fall of characters? Um. Yeah, I mean, invariably, right? You sketch out.
0: you you diagram a play and you do it with X's and O's. And then the people who embody those X's and O's are these like fallible, um, distracted mammals in a particular space and time who are subject to all of these three-dimensional pressures that X's and O's never feel, right? So it's fascinating to watch that play out and that's really the whole game um dostoevsky my favorite my favorite touchstone quote which is again which is another thing like the derrida one that i'm a little terrified to go back and find because i'm afraid i will have misremembered it and i've been carrying it around for so many years but uh i think i quote it in the in the david piece actually um which is Dostoevsky, when he was, he went through this whole false execution thing and then he was sent mm-hmm. to Siberia for years of hard labor.
1: His, his execution was like stayed like yeah. right before. It yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. They lined out. him up yeah, with yeah, like yeah. the bag over
0: the head yeah. and we're going to shoot him. And then, yeah, it was all, it was this planned thing. Um, And he wrote to his brother from Siberia that the great lesson he had learned in the entire ordeal was that the only thing that mattered in life was to be a human among humans. And it's like, I find that to be the most profound statement and a sort of life motto is like, just a human among humans. Like this this idea of radical acceptance from Buddhism or cognitive behavioral therapy or wherever that one comes from. It's, it's like, the, just something about the endless complications of being a human and we're always trying to do things. I mean we all we're always applying our like rationality to things and setting up these systems, but we're also always human subject to all these other pressures and we're always failing those systems. I don't know why that's so interesting to me, but it is. So yeah, I think anything humans do. Like I try to write about sports. My favorite compliment about anything I write about sports is just like people who don't care about sports saying that was fascinating and I don't care about sports. Cuz you write cuz what is it? It's just humans doing cultural things. I mean, jump shot is just a cultural thing with, you know, we can trace its origins and its meaning and we can frame that for somebody who's never cared about a jump shot before. Um, So yeah, I think, I think I, yeah, I I guess I inherit, I think I did inherit the ideal of the old magazine generalists like EB White, who could write about anything and that you should be able to write about anything. You should be able to write about chickens or um, touchscreen technology or graduate school or literally anything and make a general reader care about it. I think it would, I think it would dismay me more to have somebody not care about something I wrote to be like, yeah, I tried to read it. I just couldn't get into it rather than to hear from somebody who's like, that sucked. Um, that wasn't real criticism. You know, something like that. For somebody to say, yeah, it just didn't really grab me, it was boring. I think that would be more upsetting. Which also, which also makes, me, makes me think, and, I, and I've had this tension also, when I was in grad school writing this kind of stuff, like, makes me worry that I'm just tap dancing around to like, make people chuckle, or to make people like me, instead of doing like, real thinking, and real like, work of the
1: mind with my writing um so i don't know well this that's so interesting this idea of you doing real work of the mind it sounds like what we've been talking about a lot is is precisely that Uh why do you feel like you've been tap dancing
0: well because i know i definitely have this tendency to you know you you, want to be liked you want people to like you on the page you want to be likable and you want to be funny and you want to be charming i mean i guess it's like we all make these calculations when we talk to anybody anywhere in any context. um, What is authentic and what is like performing for somebody, you know? So I guess I always worry about that with writing too. I mean, I guess even with the writing, you set up these ideals, or you set up these, these kind of perfect goals, and then you fail them
1: in all kinds of interesting ways, and that becomes the writing. So, I mean, we've been talking about some of the things that you focus on as a writer and whether um, how your readers will respond to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about yet, um, but that I find striking uh, and that I think readers must find striking is the columns that you write about sentences. Mm -hmm. Your sort of new sentences. Yeah, it's a new thing. I think
0: I've only been doing it since I don't know when that started, but it's it's been maybe six months or something. I want to say. Why did you start
1: writing about sentences?
0: That was a suggestion of the editor-in-chief of the New York Times Magazine, the same guy who gave me those great suggestions about the David piece. He, um, He wanted to come up with something that I could sustain and do frequently because, again, they always want me to be writing more, and I take so long to finish these longer essays for various reasons. He wanted something that would be clean and simple and small and that I could... I could keep going with as a weekly or semi-weekly thing so I do I do three a month and um, my editor Nitsu does one a month so and his idea he came up with that idea and I think it was because since like 2010 or something I've had this Twitter account where I Mm -hmm. tweet the best sentence I read every day it was the original idea I don't always keep up with it but that's the idea I'll just tweet a sentence that I found interesting or remarkable from the day um, and that was really just a way to everybody was getting on Twitter back then and and it seemed like it could potentially suck in so much of your energy and who are you on Twitter and what kind of persona do I create, and how much time do I want to spend worrying about that stuff? And I thought, oh, I know I'll do just do a little gimmick Twitter thing where I don't even have to worry about that stuff. I'll just because I'm. I was a book critic at the time so I was reading constantly and I was just like always having just generating, I mean just piling up so many interesting sentences and underlining things. And so it was kind of a natural thing and it was fun to do. So I've been doing that for a long time and I think that's where he got the idea. And he said, what if you could just write about one sentence every week, like 300 words, it's very short. It's like you can say almost nothing in that space. Like it goes by really fast.
1: Well, can I say can I say why I like this, especially the column? I so I, I follow you on Twitter because okay. I, like, I like the the sentences, but the column itself, I yeah, you know, I, I have it here. I've been looking at um, some of your pieces, which some sort of ask us to sit with sentences to sort of feel them Uh as in your recent entry on any Prue. uh, And and, and that case you advance a sort of formal analysis of a sentence, Mm -hmm. um, which calls the reader to appreciate the aesthetics of the sentence in ways that are like really literate and nuanced, but not droningly academic. Yeah. That one one was like all about the
0: sound. Right. The sentence was the refreshed river hissed, right? That's exactly right. And you
1: basically just ask the reader, which I think is a kind of, bold and really fresh thing to do which is you just in the column you just ask the reader to sort of sit with mm-hmm. the aesthetics of the sentence and mm-hmm. just sort of feel the sentence yeah. but then I mean uh, in another case you wrote for instance on um, Elif Batuman and uh, your appreciation of her recent novel The Idiot you take a sentence as an occasion to think about the world that points to so a deadpan joke in um, that book Occasions for you. I think it was a joke about airport security. Yeah. 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 Okay. How Going yeah. through
0: airport security is like is like experiencing death.
1: Precisely. And you but you use that to sort of meditate on the luxury of the privilege of living in like a stable state.
0: That's right. That's where I got with that one eventually. Yeah.
1: So you you go, you're able to go in a variety of different directions when thinking about mm-hmm. riffing on sentences mm-hmm. for readers. And each time you sort of ask the reader to do a new thing with mm-hmm. a sentence and almost it's, it's, it seems taken together. The entries in the column seem to just encourage people to sit and appreciate sentences as sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think I, we were talking about like the mission of a writer or the a project that a writer or critic could have over time. I, that seems like that strikes me as one potential one, that that would be a, a life well lived as a writer is if you ask people to stop and look at sentences
0: and appreciate sentences. Yeah. yeah. I think that, yeah, that is something I kind of feel. And again, that goes right back to the beginning of our conversation about me being an undergraduate and learning how to look at any piece of art. From a sentence to a sculpture to actually, he used to do the observation exercise with Far Side cartoons, which was like the best. He'd break down why a Far Side cartoon worked and why it was funny, and I found that so thrilling. Uh, I think a lot of what I do springs out of
1: that. It sounds impulse. like a, and yeah. especially you're interested in comedy too. Yeah, I yeah. mean,
0: yeah, I, I always, yeah. I hate the cliche that if you explain a joke, it's no longer funny. I think it actually, if you explain it well and you explain it right, the joke becomes funnier and better and more interesting. Um, so anyway, the and the sentences is the same thing. Like I love sentences. I love style. Um, and so to be able to just pluck out, Sentences that interest me for whatever reason, I usually don't know. Like, that's one that really happens in the writing. I don't know where it's going to go, and I don't know why I've picked this particular sentence. I just know it's an interesting little sentence. And I just type it out, and I actually write it into a journal. I good old-fashioned handwrite these things. Like, I write the sentence down, and then I just start free-writing about it, and that's what comes out. Um, But I do... Yeah, I, I think... One mission I do have, and that I think criticism should do, is engage people who aren't expecting to be engaged by literature or language or sentences or whatever. Um, I didn't grow up in a family that was steeped in literature uh, or academic in any way, and yet I grew up knowing that those people were like very smart, funny, interesting people. And so I feel like, in some ways, I feel like I'm kind of a translator. Like, I want to connect that world that I grew up in to this world over here that academics look at and say, look, language is interesting, language is fun. Sometimes I think, like, I would love to come up with a way to make a show that's like the Bob Ross of writing. It's Mm -hmm. like, look how interesting sentences are in languages and, and look at how revision works and how fun it can be if you take this simple sentence and you just, like really play with it until it turns into something so interesting and weird and idiosyncratic and uh I really want to do that I was talking to my editor about like what would that be would that be a podcast or something where like I where where we have like I have like writers on and I give them some kind of like little atomic tiny sentence like the man Walked, and then, like they just revise the crap out of it on the podcast until it's some big crazy distinctive <laughs> thing like because like yeah, I mean, that's what it, again the fun and the and the and the play of it um that's what I'm trying to get at, partly with the new sentences, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's fun and um, but I like doing it. I always liked teaching when I was in grad school I was a TA, so I would teach literary interpretation here at NYU and um, and I really enjoyed it. I think because like for me it was it was such a formative thing to have a professor articulate that little that little creative flip that turns that turns you from a passive looker at something into like an active thinker about something.
1: That was the second and final half of our conversation with Sam Anderson, critic-at-large at the New York Times Magazine. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service, Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course the Hauenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been and continues to be quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow GBSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.